0: Good morning. We continue this morning in our series on the local church. You remember we started by first establishing purchase is right? the church uh, is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. We talked about the priority of the gathered church, how uh, the word of God, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, uh, how that is of paramount importance. And we spent three weeks covering the offices of the church, talked about elders, talked about deacons, we looked at their functions, we looked at their qualifications. Well today I want to begin talking about another important aspect of life in the local church and that is the ordinances. Of the church. Uh, Now, when I when I use that term ordinances, uh, I'm simply referring to the two practices that Jesus ordered for His church, uh, namely baptism and the Lord's supper. And so, we'll talk about the ordinance of baptism this week, and then next week we'll cover the ordinance of the Lord's supper. Now, this has happened to me dozens of times, and I'm sure it's happened to some of you as well. I'll be talking to someone about sports, uh, and and really, uh, I know nothing about pop culture. I don't know any of the new uh, movies or TV shows or music or anything like that, but I can talk sports. And so I'll be talking to someone about sports, and one of us will bring up football. Now I'm thinking... Brady and Mahomes. I'm thinking Giants and Jets. They're thinking Ronaldo and Messi and Real Madrid and Liverpool. And so I'm thinking of the most exciting, fast-paced, action-packed sport there is. They're thinking of a bunch of guys just standing around, kicking the ball back and forth. What someone who grew up in the States thinks of when they hear the word football well, it's different from what someone who grew up overseas thinks of when they hear the word football. And you throw a strip, that's right, Aussie rules football. It gets real confusing real quick. So everybody pictures something in their mind when they hear the word football. But oftentimes, we're thinking about different things. Well, it's kind of like that with the word Baptism. Like everybody pictures something in their mind when they hear that word baptism. Uh, even anyone who's even loosely associated with like Christianity in the broadest sense of that term, everybody has some take on baptism. Every church, every denomination, uh, even cults that have deviated from orthodoxy, everybody has some take on baptism. Uh, even the Quakers, right? They don't baptize. They make a good oatmeal, but they don't baptize. Right? But even by not baptizing, they're saying something about baptism. And So everybody has something in mind when we talk about baptism, but it's kind of like football. Oftentimes we're thinking of different things. And so what I want to do today is to think biblically about what baptism is. And listen, first, Baptist church... Right? Being Baptist, uh, one of our distinctives, one of the things that make us who we are, it has to do with baptism. And so we especially need to know about baptism. And so here's how we're going to go about this topic this morning. Uh, first, I'm going to make an overarching point about what baptism is. And I'm going to try to show you from the scriptures that baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus' death and resurrection. And then once we've established that overarching truth, I'm going to then give you four implications of that truth that hopefully are going to clear up some misconceptions that we might have about baptism. Uh, And those four implications are, number one, that baptism doesn't save. Number two, that baptism is for believers. Number three, that baptism is by immersion. And number four, baptism is a church ordinance. So baptism doesn't save, it's for believers, it's by immersion, and it is a church ordinance. And then we'll finish with a few quick points of application. Uh, But before we do any of that, will you please join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we study this topic of baptism from your word, We ask that you would help us. Uh, We ask that you would grant to us clarity from your scriptures on this top word. And that you would grant us hearts that would seek to be obedient to what you show us from your word. We pray that this would not just be informational, but that your word by the power of the Holy Spirit would really speak to the hearts of your people. Father, we pray that as we who are saved, as we think back to our own baptisms, that we would be further compelled to live for your glory. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that you would save them and that we would in due time be able to celebrate their baptism with them. And we ask all this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. All right, so let's start with our big picture observation, the big picture truth about baptism, which is that baptism is a picture of our union with Christ's death and resurrection. You say, well, what is this union with Christ business? Well, union with Christ, that's the often overlooked but wonderful biblical truth that Christ is in the believer, and the believer is is in Christ, right? There's some mystical union there. Uh, The language that you see in your New Testaments about being in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord, right? That's all referring to union with Christ. You can probably think of a couple of verses right now off the top of your head that use that kind of terminology. So for example, look at what Jesus says in John 14 20. Uh, In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, And you in me and I in you, right? You in me, I in you, that is union with Christ. And here's the wonderful thing for those of us who are Christians. uh, It's because of our union with Christ that believers receive every benefit and blessing of salvation, right? Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, so much more, right? All of those benefits come to us in chapter 1. Uh, Turn there in your Bibles and uh, look along. Uh, Paul's talking, right? He's opening the letter. He talks about how God the Father has blessed us. Look at verse 3. In Christ, that's our union with Christ. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you say, well, what kind of spiritual blessings are you talking about, Paul? Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so, our election from eternity past, that is in him, in Christ. It's a benefit of our union with Christ. Now skip down to verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so redemption, forgiveness, right those are in Christ. One more from the same passage, verse 13. In him, you also are. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so even our eternal security, right? The guarantee of our glorification through the deposit of the Holy Spirit, well, that's also in Christ. You see my point. Every blessing we receive in the Christian life is a product of our union with Christ. And so you can go through the New Testament. You'll find literally hundreds of references To union with Christ. And all the blessings and all of the benefits that we as believers receive because of our union with him. right? Because we're in Christ. And Christ is in us. But what's all that union with Christ stuff have to do with baptism? Well, baptism is a picture. It's a symbolic representation of that union with Christ. And specifically, it pictures the believer's union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Look at Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So when someone is baptized, or when they go into the water, they're identifying with Christ's death on their behalf. They're being baptized into his death, associating with his death. Uh, They're picturing and portraying the fact that Jesus has taken all their sin upon himself. He bears his people's sin. He dies for them so that they might be forgiven of that sin. And so the old self is dead. The Bible uses language like, uh, we have died with Christ Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And so the believer is proclaiming that because of their union with Christ in his death, their old self, right, that rebel and enemy of God is now dead. But Christ's death for sinners, right, that's only part of the story because he also rose again from the dead. He defeated sin and death. He showed that his payment for sin was accepted So that all for whom he died really are forgiven of their sin. And the believer, united to Christ, shares in that victorious resurrection. He's a new creation. He's alive in Christ. And all of that is pictured in baptism when the person comes out of the water. They show their identification with Jesus' resurrection. Look at the next two verses, Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Four. look at verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see that? Union with Christ in his death— And in his resurrection, that's what's being symbolized in baptism. Paul makes the same exact point in Colossians chapter 2. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And So baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a public act for all to see that reflects what's already happened in the life of the individual being baptized. Now, that individual has been saved through Jesus' death and his resurrection, right? benefits of their union with him. And in baptism, that individual is publicly identifying with them. Now, if you get that, if you get that baptism is not just a, a meaningless ritual or like a, like a superstitious rite, but it's a powerful and visible symbol of union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, well, then I think there's at least four implications that follow. And thinking through these four implications, I think will help us to clarify a lot of the confusion that's out there with regards to baptism. And so let's consider those four implications now, one at a time. First, implication number one, baptism doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. And this is a really important implication for us to understand because there's a lot of groups out there who will tell you that baptism is required for salvation, or that once salvation happens at baptism, at the moment of baptism, or that the act of baptism itself is what confers salvation on somebody? But, friends, the Bible is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, you know Ephesians 2 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Well, if you say that baptism is required for salvation, well, then what is baptism? Baptism is a work necessary for salvation, which then makes salvation based on works. And what does Paul say about that in Romans 11? If by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, Grace will no longer be grace. So to require baptism for salvation is essentially to nullify the grace of God. Right? It's to reject the Bible's teachings on the free gift of salvation. And remember our kind of overarching truth that baptism is a picture. It's a picture of our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Right? It represents our union with Christ's death and resurrection. And so it's our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's that union and the faith and repentance that come with it. Right, That's what saves us, not baptism. It's our union with Christ's death and resurrection, a free gift from God if there ever was one. That's what saves us, not baptism. Baptism is just the picture That points to the reality of salvation. It is not salvation itself. To give you an illustration, uh, my wedding ring, this is a symbol, It's it's a picture that points to the reality that I am married, but my wedding ring is not marriage itself. Like what makes me married is my union before God to my wife. It's not the ring that symbolizes that union. Well, similarly, what makes one saved is one's union with Christ. It's not the baptism that then symbolizes that union. And so if I were a Christian who truly trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but I wasn't baptized, that would not make me any less united to Christ. Now, I should get baptized in obedience to Christ, and we'll talk about that later, But you don't need to get baptized in order to be saved. Maybe the most obvious example of that would be the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, Jesus doesn't say anything to him about baptism. Why not? Because the thief's faith was enough for salvation. Baptism wasn't required because his union with Christ was secured by his faith in Jesus. Not this impossible baptism that he would have to undergo. And so Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Implication number one, baptism doesn't save. Friends, beware of anyone who tells you that you must be baptized in order to be saved, what we might call a baptismal regeneration That regeneration happens at the moment of, or with, or because of baptism. That is a distorted gospel. That attaches the work of baptism to salvation by grace, thereby nullifying the grace of God. Now just to be clear, that's different from saying that if you're saved, in obedience to Christ, uh, you must be baptized But that rightly sees baptism as a fruit of your salvation, not as the root of your salvation. But to say that you must be baptized in order to be saved, now you've made baptism the root of your salvation. But friends, this goes beyond just the heretical groups that are out there that would preach baptismal regeneration. Uh, It can take on more subtle forms in uh, churches like ours. I remember speaking to someone in this church who'd been visiting uh, a few years ago. And we spoke for a little bit, and uh, it was very clear uh, through the conversation. She told me just kind of how she was living her life completely uh, antithetically to the Word of God. And and I asked her about her testimony, and, and she really had no testimony at all. And so I said to her, based on what you're telling me, I don't think you're a Christian. And she looked at me, all funny, and, and very sincerely said, but I've been baptized. And she probably was not baptized at a church that taught baptismal regeneration. But in her mind, salvation and baptism had become completely conflated nonetheless. and So if that's you this morning, like if someone were to ask you, why do you think you're saved? Or, well, why do you think that you're going to heaven? And your answer is because, well, I've been baptized at such and such an age. Well, what does that reveal about what you're ultimately trusting in for your salvation? friend, if you're trusting in the experience of your baptism, well, that's simply not going to be enough to get any sinner into heaven. Like if on Judgment Day... You're standing before God, and you point to your baptism. But God had been baptized. Well, in spite of religious ceremony, you'd still be in your sins and bound for an eternity in hell to pay for those sins. The only means by which sinners can go to heaven to be with a holy God is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's it. And so if that's you, if you're looking to anything other than Jesus as the basis of your salvation, whether it's your baptism or your upbringing or your experiences that you've had, well, friend, I tell you today to look to Christ. Look to Christ. Put aside everything. Put aside your good works. Put aside your righteousness. Put aside your baptism. Don't place your eternal confidence in any of those things. Instead, put your faith and your trust entirely in Christ and Christ alone. Implication number one, baptism doesn't save. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ, his death and resurrection. And so the power of salvation, it's not in baptism itself. It's in the union with Christ that that baptism represents. Implication number two... Baptism is for believers. Specifically, I'm referring to the fact that infants should not be baptized, but only professing believers. Now, I would say that of the two implications that we've talked about so far, like the first one, that is of paramount primary importance, right? That baptism doesn't save. Like, that's a gospel issue. If you get that one wrong, you are distorting the gospel by adding works to faith alone in Christ alone. You get that one wrong. That has eternal consequences. Like Paul says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Baptismal regeneration is a gospel contrary to the one you received. Whether or not infants can be baptized... This, I would argue, is more of like, a, like an in-house uh, intramural debate, right? This is a secondary issue uh, that is, uh, we can respectfully disagree on this, like I can be a Baptist and you can be a Presbyterian, uh, I can be a credo-Baptist, right, one who holds to believers baptism, uh, and you can be a paedo-Baptist, one who thinks that infant baptism is valid. Uh, and we can still believe the same gospel and call each other brother and sister and have biblical fellowship and so on. Like some of my uh, favorite authors and pre and implication number two theologians, uh, they're Presbyterians and they're Pado Baptists. And so everything I say in implication number two, I say uh, with humility and uh, with respect for the other side. But just because it's a disagreement among friends doesn't mean someone's not right. right? <laughs> I love my wife. Friendly disagreements all the time, that doesn't mean that you you get my point. I'll leave it at that. Implication number two baptism is for believers. Now, I realize I am not going to be able to solve like this centuries old debate in just a few minutes, right? We're not even devoting a full sermon to this thing, right? This is one of four implications of our main idea. I'm spending like three minutes on this whole thing. Uh, My goal is not to fully convince you if you are a paedo-baptist or if you have Presbyterian leanings. Love to chat afterwards, but like here in this sermon, we're just not gonna have time for that. All I wanna do right now is to think about how if baptism is a picture of our union with Christ's death and his resurrection... How a logical implication of that is that baptism is for believers. Because you see, in essence, what well-meaning Presbyterians are doing when they baptize their children is they're saying, well, this child, uh, he or she is part of the covenant people and we are baptizing them uh, in faith and hope that they will one day be saved. Not to oversimplify, but that's essentially what they're saying. But what is baptism? It's a picture of our union with Christ's death and resurrection. This is not an, well, I sure hope this happens, or I believe by God's grace that uh, this is going to happen. No, this is a picture of a union that has happened. And the benefits and blessings of salvation that have been bestowed on the individual through faith. Uh, you remember what Paul said in Romans 6.3. We looked at that verse earlier. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, it represents something that's already happened. Not something that may or may not happen in the future. Or consider Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Christ. There is just no category in that verse for the infant who's baptized in faith and hope of future salvation who then grows up to be an unbeliever. A category that any Presbyterian has to allow for. Galatians 3.27 doesn't allow for that. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To grant. And so it seems inconsistent with the meaning of baptism to grant infants the symbol if the underlying reality is not there. It's only hoped for. It'd be kind of like putting a wedding ring on your child because you hope that in the future they'll get married. Well, that changes the meaning of the symbol, doesn't it? Implication number two, baptism is for believers. Implication number three, baptism is by immersion. That is, baptism is done by putting a person into a body of water and bringing them out of that body of water as opposed to just sprinkling them. And this would be another point of respectful difference with regards to baptism that we would have with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Now there's many ways in which one could argue that baptism is by immersion. Uh, One would be just biblical precedent. Like there's no one Bible verse that I could point to that plainly says baptism is to be done by immersion into a body of water, but there are several examples that we could look at from the scriptures that would strongly imply that immersion is the expected mode of baptism. For example, look at John 3.23. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful There. Water was plentiful there. So in order to baptize, John goes to a place that the scriptures go out of their way to point out had a lot of water. You don't need that much water to sprinkle people. I could probably sprinkle all of you with a 20-ounce bottle of water. You do need a lot of water to dunk people, to immerse people in water. Acts 8, look at verses 36 and following. They were going along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So get the picture. You got Philip. He's preaching. Philip mentions baptism eunuch. The eunuch gets saved. Apparently, somewhere in that gospel message, Philip mentions baptism because the eunuch points out that, Hey, listen, I need to be baptized. So verse 38, He commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts. He could have just said, and Philip baptized him, period. But he gives us all this extra info, which is actually really helpful for us in our case, that they went down into the water, and they came up out of the water, Like if Philip is just sprinkling the eunuch, surely they're not going to bother getting all wet going into the water. You know how things start to smell when you get all wet. Why not just stand besides the water and just take a handful and boom, we're done. So one way that one could possibly argue that baptism is by immersion is through biblical precedent. Another way to argue that baptism is by immersion is to just look at the word itself baptize, it's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to dip or to immerse or to plunge. And so there's a separate Greek word in our New Testaments uh, when we refer to something being sprinkled, like in the book of Hebrews, right? sprinkling with the blood. uh, That's rantizo. That's a completely separate word. If sprinkling was the proper mode, uh, we would be rentizing new believers, not baptizing new believers. But for the purposes of the sermon, I'm going to make the argument that baptism is by immersion, not from scriptural precedent and not from the definition of the word, although you say, well, you just did both of those things. But I'm primarily arguing that baptism is by immersion from the fact that, remember, our overarching idea, our overarching truth That baptism is a picture of our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Well, if that's true, sprinkling does not adequately convey that picture. Dunking, immersion, does convey that picture. Look again at Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Buried, which is symbolized by immersion into water that picture is lost if you sprinkle. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might clear in immersion, raised, brought up out of the water, that picture is clear in immersion, that picture is not clear at all with sprinkling. So, Implication number three, baptism is by immersion. Implication number four, baptism is Is a church ordinance. And I'm putting the emphasis there on the word church. Remember several years ago, I was out with a a group from Grace Baptist Church where uh, Peter Nikotra is the pastor. We're doing some street evangelism. Just passing out tracts and sharing the gospel. And a few dozen feet from us, like in the same area, was this other group. But instead of like gospel tracts, they just had this big carton full of loaves of bread. And their thing was, hey, if you, get, if you sign up to get baptized today, you can have a loaf of bread. And there's a lot I could say about that. But one of the problems there is that they've taken baptism and they've completely separated it from the local church. Right? Baptism then becomes like this commodity, right? just something that you kind of sign up for not all that different from, like, donating blood or buying Girl Scout cookies. But why is that so problematic? Uh, to remove baptism from the context of the local church. Why is that a problem? Well, it goes back to our overarching point, that baptism is a picture of our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Because one of the key implications to our being united to Christ as believers is that we've been thereby united to one another. We talked about this in our sermon on the church. Right? The gospel isn't just about God uniting individual sinners to himself. The gospel is God uniting individual sinners to himself in order to make for himself a people who are this morning in our scripture reading. It says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Right? That's the gospel, that Jesus saved sinners. But you keep reading the verse, you see that Jesus does this to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. I in them, and that's our union with Christ, and you in me, that's a Trinitarian union, that they may become perfectly one. And so our individual union with Christ necessitates our union with each other as the church. You think about one of the most common metaphors for the church in the Bible, uh, that of the body. Well, each of us is joined to Christ the head, and therefore we form one body. What's that got to do with baptism? We'll look at 1 Corinthians 12. Just as the body is one and has many members— And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so if baptism is a picture of our union with Christ, and if our union with Christ necessitates union with the church, then it only makes sense that one's baptism should be closely tied to the local church. That is, an ordinance that so vividly portrays union with Christ should bring that person into union with his body, which is the church. And so we can think about baptism as like the act of initiation into the body of Christ, into the church. Let me illustrate this from the book of Acts. Look at Acts 2.41 those who received his word, Peter's word, on the day of Pentecost were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who received Peter's word, right, they, they, they repented and they believed, they were saved, they were baptized. Well, then they got their loaf of bread and they went back to their hometowns to just kind of live their Christian lives independently, and do their own thing, right, just me and Jesus. no. Uh, Luke, the author, records two things that happen. Number one, in the second half of verse 41, those 3,000 souls were added. Added to what? Added to the church. Hold that thought for two weeks when we talk about church membership. And secondly, right, verses 42 to 47, those 3,000 souls that were just baptized into the church, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so you see there's an inseparable link between baptism and life in the church. Now, are there exceptions to this? Sure. Perhaps on the missionary frontier, right? You're thinking about the Ethiopian eunuch. There's no established church where he's going. Well, in cases like that, uh, you might have a missionary uh, like Philip baptize a new convert apart from uh, a non-existent local church. But situations like that, Are rare, especially for us in this country. So, what does all that mean, just practically speaking? Well, for one, it means that we would not baptize anybody at this church who is not going to join this church. Because to do so would be to separate the church and baptism. Uh, To just baptize someone and let them carry on by themselves, that's just not the example that we see in the New Testament nor does it properly capture the meaning of baptism as a picture of our union with not only Christ, but also his body. Also, it means that baptism, by like a group of your friends or a fellowship or a parachurch ministry that's not associated with a church, well, it's not really a baptism, because that would be essentially uh, missing, a vital part of that picture of baptism which is union to his body, the church. Implication number four, baptism is a church ordinance. So we've been asking this question as uh, we consider application each week. Uh, given that everything that we said was biblical, well, how should we then live? By the way, that is a title of a book written by a Presbyterian. So there you go. Three application points here. How should we then live Application point number one is to be baptized. Friend, if you are a Christian, you have pa- placed your faith and trust in Christ, includes those of you who were sprinkled as infants, well, you ought to be baptized. Uh, considering implication number four, uh, that baptism is a church ordinance, uh, we would not baptize you apart from the church membership process, which, uh, Lord willing, will cover in two weeks. Uh, But if, brother or sister, you have never been scripturally baptized, well, in obedience to your Lord and his commands, you ought to be baptized. Application point number two is to remember your own baptism. Believer, remember your own baptism. One possible danger of everything that I've said about baptism is that we might, in light of all that I've said, minimize baptism. Like, because we rightly understand it as contributing nothing to our salvation, we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. We might be tempted to think that our baptism was just like this uh, meaningless ceremony, like our college graduation or something like that. Uh, But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. Our baptism as we rightly think about it, as a picture of our union with Christ's death and his resurrection, friends, it's a powerful means of grace that God has given us for our everyday Christian lives. For example, right, consider your daily fight against sin. Well, listen to what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 6. Like, how do we kill sin, Paul? How do we live holy lives, Paul? Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you see that the way that you fight sin in your everyday Christian life, is to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And you say, man, if I only had a tangible experience that was a clear picture of that reality that I could remember and look back on, well, that's your baptism. Your baptism is a personal experience that you can recall that clearly portrays the fact that you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. So friends, when we reflect on and be like, hey, or our baptism, it's not like a sentimental, like sappy, like, hey, don't you remember the good old days thing? Uh, this is remembering our baptism, remembering the fact that we are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We have died to sin, right? That's no longer us, and that then encourages us and presses us on to live holy lives. Are going under the water as we remember that. We remember the death of our old self. That old self that was foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That old self is crucified with Christ. And then we remember how we came up out of the water. How that symbolizes our new life. That we are a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Application number two, remember your own baptism. Remember it as a visible, tangible, experiential representation of the power of the gospel in your own life. The same gospel that empowers you to live holy lives each and every day. Application point number three, to rejoice over baptism coming up in our body. I wish we had a baptism coming up that we might apply this point as a church immediately. Uh, But Lord willing, we'll have one soon enough. And when we do, I want you to kind of store this application point up for that time. We ought to rejoice over baptisms in our body. To truly rejoice that your brother or your sister standing before you is identifying with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The same gospel that saved each and every one in this room who is in Christ. To truly rejoice that Christ unites himself to his people, thus conferring all the benefits and blessings of salvation in baptism. And to truly rejoice that now, as you walk alongside that brother or that sister as fellow church members, remember point number four, you'll have the opportunity to exhort one another and to encourage one another with the very thing that your baptism symbolize, your union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So dear church, uh, anytime that we witness a baptism in our church, like our hearts should be overflowing with joy and gratitude and praise, not only because of the joyful truths of the gospel that are being represented, but because those joyful truths of the gospel have been applied to sinners like me and like you. Sinners in our midst, right? Sinners who are now our very brothers and sisters. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate Application number three is to rejoice over baptisms in our body. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the picture of the gospel that is given to us in baptism. Father, we pray that as your saints think back on our own baptisms that you would fill us with encouragement, strength that we might press on in this day living holy lives for you. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you We pray that they would indeed place their faith and trust in the risen Lord, that they would obediently then follow in baptism in the life of the church. And We pray all this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.